This podcast is presented by DistroKid, an incredible service for musicians that helps you upload your songs to all music streaming platforms from iTunes to Spotify and Apple Music, then pays you revenue from your songs all in one place. They've got a really cool new feature called Splits that allows you to add collaborators so you can pay your co-writers and fellow musicians without needing an accountant. To get 30% off your first year's DistroKid subscription, just head to distrokid.com slash VIP slash hard times. Welcome to the first ever podcast. My name is Jeremy Bohm. I am your host. And if it is your first time here, this is a show where I interview artists of all kinds about the first experiences in their art form that led them to where they are today. This is episode 128. And my guest this week is Scott Vogel of Terror, of Buried Alive, of Despair, of Slugfest. We talk about all these things. Uh, very, very excited uh, to have this guest. He's someone that I've been, uh, a, you know, kind of circling for a long time, and uh, we made it happen. If you're a fan of Scott Vogel, I think you're going to have a really good time here. He is an incredible guest, lots of great stories, um, very fun to talk to. The time just flew. I feel like we could have just kept going for another couple hours, but um, maybe we'll have him back down the line because uh, I think you're really going to enjoy this. Um, with me right now, actually, is the producer of the show. Uh, his name is Tim Crisp. He uh, hosts a show called Better Yet. And last night, I actually did the first ever live podcast. Uh, and he wanted to ask me a couple of questions about it. So, Tim, what's up? Well, Jeremy, I got to say, it's great to be here. I listen every week. And this is a this is a really big opportunity for me to just like say hello and and let you know that I'm a huge fan of your podcast. And, you know, You're I had a live show. Listen, so, yeah. well, yeah, you do pay me. Yeah, um, you can pay me more to to tell everybody more loudly how much I love listening to your podcast. Um, I, I hosted a podcast. I've hosted a podcast myself, and we had our first live show. Um, and I remember it's actually it's where I met my partner, or at least like where I felt like things were going good. Um, and like you, um. You know, when you get excited and you get to do something like this that you don't get to share with people very often, it's really, really freeing and pretty religious experience, I have to say. So I lassoed our mutual friend, David Anthony, over to my house after our first live show because I had to talk about it. And the idea of you talking about this, why you're lonesome, uh-uh. How was last night uh it was fun it was uh so i interviewed justin pearson that episode will be up uh potentially next week maybe the week after but um yeah it was it was uh nerve-wracking i you know this coming weekend is our 15-year anniversary shows friday and saturday for two shades and more, we've been rehearsing like crazy for those and i think i was more anxious and more nervous about 
last night than those shows. Like this is like last night's the live podcast thing was at the forefront of my brain in terms of nerves. Cause in a way it feels like it kind of harnesses that like giving a book report in front of your peers oh, as a yeah. high schooler, because you're just talking and oh, you're sort yeah. of being, you sort of feel like you're being looked at as like, can you interview somebody sort mm-hmm. of thing? Like, I don't mm-hmm. know. And in front of people, the whole, the pressure's on. So and yeah, for, it, was, it was nerve wracking for the listeners out there. This is kind of what it's like to do a podcast. Sometimes you do something that is really it's about sharing a conversation with someone and the magic that can happen there. And then, you know, you guys listen to Jeremy each week. He packs these way in advance. So it's um, it's really cool experience that you got to have, too, of just like being in the moment and having people there. And I know that that was super nervous. So or nerve wracking for you. And you always talk about first experiences on this show. So how long did it take to settle in? Did you feel like you found your rhythm with the live audience? Yeah, I, you know, I, I, as soon as, so we played the intro, you know, Mm -hmm. loud or whatever. Then I came up on stage and I sort of, I, I introduced the show and then I brought Justin up on stage and, uh, you know, the audience seemed, uh, there for it you know and then there was some good moments where some jokes were cracked and you know Mm -hmm. the audience laughed and things like that um i did my best you know what an advantage was was the lights were sort of right on us in the way that i couldn't really see the audience so i sort of just focused all my attention just right on looking at justin like i wasn't like necessarily playing to the audience Mm -hmm. um so i think that was a help and uh he's as you'll hear when that episode comes out like he's an incredible guest and yeah when prepping for the episode, it was, uh, the part that was hardest was I knew I only had 50 minutes mm-hmm. because it was like eight o'clock. And then the movie we were showing, which was blood simple, the first Coen brothers film that was starting. Well, yeah, at nine. I've heard of that one. Yeah. So Got that on Blu-ray. <laughs> so, so it was like, okay, I knew I had a specific amount of time, but like, he's someone who's been in like, like about 20 bands. Yeah. You know what I'm saying yeah. so like, I can't talk to him about each one of these bands. Mm-hmm. So I'll have to find the through line and just kind of keep it to the first experiences. And yeah. that pretty much ate up the hour. Other yeah. than just like asking about some specific locust stuff and whatever. It's, yeah, it's a pretty kinetic ride. I'm so excited to to hear it and to hear you share that experience like with the audience being there. Um, I know that you've got other press to do and I'm not going to keep you here, but funny story our friend Deanna Bellows who was on this show great kid toughest interview in the biz she was my first guest on the first of the night for my four live guests and we'd never met and she was just like oh oh and I was like so you write songs and she's like oh is this going well and everybody just loved it loved the fucking energy so much and it's a it's a night that i'll never forget and i'm so excited to just like share the warm feelings that you got from doing this because you do your best every week and you know what you do a damn good job appreciate i i appreciate that tim uh tell us about your show because it's coming back right or it's back now officially it's back baby we took 18 months off. I went to a web development boot camp. I learned how to build websites. I freaking feel alive and fresh. I feel like I'm at the new phase of the rest of my life. And yeah, the podcast is back. We just had James Goodson on um, 
James is in a band called Daisy. I don't have you heard of Daisy, Jeremy? <laughs> I have as the, uh, as a, he will be an upcoming guest on this show at some point uh, in the coming weeks. Uh, yeah. Well, I talked to all kinds of people yeah. that you talked to and I had you on the show a couple times and, you know, I just want to say from one bald person with an SM7B to another bald person with an SM7B, <laughs> dude, respect, respect. You're doing a great job. You're an awesome host of this podcast. Uh, well, I appreciate that. And uh, I want to mention before we get to the interview, if you are looking for more Scott Vogel, there is a bonus episode available with this podcast uh, that you can get over at patreon.com slash the first ever Patreon. Uh, you can subscribe for as little as three bucks a month and get access to that bonus episode where he answered questions that were submitted by subscribers. Uh, you get that plus a whole lot more access to a Discord channel, tons of stuff. Um, so yeah, hit up patreon.com. It helps support the show. Uh, yeah, so patreon.com slash the first ever Patreon. Quickly um, say something about patreon.com slash first ever podcast, right? First uh, ever yeah. Patreon. First ever Patreon. Um, those are some of my, that's my favorite five minutes of the show each week is those listener questions. And I just always get such a kick out of, you know, you guys are just finished the interview. You're feeling good. Doesn't really matter because it's just for the people who are listening. It's a cool place to be over there on the first ever Patreon, if you ask me. <laughs> well, I, I, yeah, I, I enjoy that aspect, too, because the, the questions that get submitted by subscribers are ones that are sometimes so left field that uh, things, you know, I would never expect to ask. So um, it's a lot of fun. It helps support the show. And if you haven't subscribed to the show on Spotify, Apple, wherever it is you're listening to this, please do that. Leaving a positive rating review, always helpful. Um, so if this is your first time here and you enjoy it, uh, give us a follow. It, it would, uh, it helps the show and it means a whole lot. Thank you, Tim. Without further ado, here is my conversation with Scott Vogel. What's up, Scott? We're doing it. How yeah. are you? Close to wonderful. Close to wonderful. What, <laughs> what could we do to make it wonderful? I, I heard you're drinking something decaf. Is that the problem? Uh no, I am I am drinking something calf, but my wonderful friend Jay helped me do this podcast with the microphones and stuff. So I asked him what I could bring him to make him happy, happy, and he went calf. D he went decaf. Okay, okay, fantastic. I I got it. Yeah, shout out, uh, shout out Jay. Where are you? What studio are you actually at? What which one is this? So this is called GCR which is owned by one of the almighty Goo Goo Dolls. And, no way. Uh, yep, it's here in Buffalo. And uh, ever, since I, ever since I moved back here, um, this is the place I've done all sorts of vocals at for all the various wonderful projects I have. Okay. I remember, I think it was, it could have been talking to someone and every time I die, that would make sense because they're Buffalo that like, um, members of the Goo Goo Dolls really are still involved in that community there musically. So is that like one of the ways they are because of the studio that people come and record at? Yeah. Um, I don't know if I'm the best person to ask about that. I don't, I've seen, uh, Robbie who owns this studio here a couple times, which is, he seemed very nice and, and very, very kind and, and stuff like that. 
I don't really go out into the world too much besides hardcore shows. You know, okay, sure. not to say that I'm that closed minded. I go to other shows, but yeah, I don't see them chilling. But I don't know if I'm part of the community. Fair enough. Fair enough. Is that now? Uh, before we move off of the Goo Goo Dolls, is that a band that uh, you feel like Buffalo has a lot of pride in? Like, is that a band you ever saw when you were growing up or anything? Oh my God, yeah. Like it, when I was in like let's say 1986, 1987, me and my brother used to see them play for a hundred. I, I can, I remember this, this vividly, them being on stage in some tiny venue and saying, throw some of your clothes on stage. We're going on tour and we need clothes. So they were at a point where they were probably grinding harder than most of the bands we know today. And, uh, if you know their early stuff, they were kind of like really punky, thrashy, crossovery, and would play wild shows. And uh, you know, so my my the f- first hardcore show I consider was DRI Gangrene and the Goo Goo Dolls playing in Niagara Falls, really close to Buffalo. So when you say that to most people, they're like the Goo Goo Dolls. How? Why would they play that? But to me, it was like made perfect sense yeah th- i mean i love i love those first couple records like they're they're so so good i mean i write for some of the radio hits too like those are kind of undeniable but yeah like what is it like the first three there's like jed those records are great and there's a fun fact that i always love throw out i don't know if you realize this do you know that they're the highest selling band on metal blade records <laughs> sounds about right yeah the um, fact that they're Oh, like over Slayer that they've sold more records because I think the big radio record was maybe still licensed to Metal Blade, which is like just undercover incredible. I would say honestly, I like the radio hits better than the old stuff. So Fair. crucify me if you must, but I'll take the the ballads. <laughs> I mean, Iris is like definitely one of the best of the best of the best. So I totally I, I'm with you on that. You you're from like born and raised Buffalo, right? Like that's where you you grew up or was there anywhere before that or anything like that that you uh, spent any time as, as a kid? I was born here and lived here up until 1999. So, uh, yeah, I lived here for a long time. Then I left and moved to L.A. for 18 years, 19 years. And now I'm back. Yeah, what uh I don't know if I realize this like what was the motivator when you did come to LA? So, I think living in Buffalo for 20 30 years and then uh buried alive my one of my earlier bands getting to tour the whole country and maybe even going to Europe seeing that there's a whole nother world out there, it just made me want to get out of Buffalo. And, uh, I was dating a girl at the time that worked at victory records. So she, she lived in Chicago and I didn't really want to live in Chicago. She didn't want to move to Buffalo. So we just landed on California and Fair enough. Uh, there we went. Yeah. Well, I don't know if I know this, when you came to LA, what, where did you land? Were you like, what part of LA did you move to? What was the first spot? North Hollywood. 
Love it. That's like the everyone's that's everyone's thing. Like everyone always ends up in North Hollywood. Like like I was I could have guessed it. It's it's so funny how that always happens. Is there a reason or like I, I feel like it's usually like rent seems cheap and it seems like you're gonna be in Hollywood or something like that. It's like one of the other things, but uh yeah, it's like I every one of my friends has at one point had a stint in North Hollywood, including myself. I think it was it was the cheapest place we could find. Like moving from Buffalo, I had when I left Buffalo, I had a, a house with other members of Buried Alive, and I was paying like three hundred dollars for my room and every bill included. And yeah. then when I got to LA, I moved into a studio apartment, and it was like eight hundred, nine hundred dollars. Which now they're probably fifteen hundred dollars or more. Totally. Yeah. So uh, yeah. it was a, a big wake up call. So I think it was like, this is all we can afford. For sure. Like what I where did I, I was on like the corner of like Van Owen and uh, and Laurel Canyon, like two blocks away from the Bank of America, where there was that big like heat style shootout, yep. like a yep. bank robbery shootout. Uh, yep. So that was always the landmark when someone wanted to be like, "What part of North Hollywood are you in?" I'm like, uh, <laughs> "Right, right next to the 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 famous bank robbery shootout. That's where I was." <laughs> in all my time in L.A., I was only sta- in in those areas: uh, North Hollywood, Sherman Oaks, Burbank. I never left that little pocket, and that's why, For like, sure. so many parts of L.A., I still have no. People will tell me where they live, and I'm like no idea where that is at all i i've lived here my entire life and because like i feel like every year like there's like a new pocket of like a small city you know like there's like a new name for like a four block radius that people like put on something (laughs) obviously it's just like a way to make rent really expensive to be like oh i live in this part of town you're like that shit didn't exist when i was a kid like what are you talking (laughs) about it's so funny how that works um well let me ask you this when you were uh when you were growing up what was the first thing that you connected with musically that felt like it was yours maybe not something that was being played in the house but something that you uh found and maybe like felt like it gave you some sort of identity i feel like early stuff for me was more like uh Kind of like some, is it glam metal? Motley Crue, Rat, stuff like that, I would think. Uh, That was like early stuff that I really would buy records. But even stuff like ACDC and Quiet Riot, Twisted Sister, that that stuff. Um, At the same time, though, I was really into like early rap and hip hop, like uh, Run DMC and UTFO. So kind of both those things but leaning more into the being a little dirtbag motley crew <laughs> and, and, and twisted sister and stuff for sure did was there any of those bands that were because i mean it's it's so commonly put in with like sunset strip la type shit like a lot of that hair metal stuff but was there any east coast bands that maybe i don't realize that were doing that huh i don't know and back then, yeah. I would never even think of a location. Sure, yeah. I know Bon young. Jovi's yeah. from New Jersey. There you go. Yeah, there's that. <laughs> he was leading the charge for New Jersey. That's for sure. That's for sure. But yeah, I was trying to think if there was any, like, I mean, I don't know. Like, I, I'm just throwing it. It's like, was Cinderella possibly from New York? You know what I'm saying? Like, I have no idea. Didn't, uh, 
Axl Rose come from somewhere like Indiana or something? Oh, that could be. He seems like I a transplant. He, I think so. But yeah, at that point, I didn't even know territorial metal scenes or glam scenes. I probably yeah, didn't no, even realize I, most of those bands were from L.A. I was I was like in fifth grade and just saw the videos and saw the cover art and knew it was like a little edgy and a little bit uh, aggressive and uh, no, outside I, the box. So that was the first thing that caught me. I feel it. Also, by the way, I want to throw out when I was uh, preparing for this interview, I realized you are exactly 10 years plus one day older than me. I'm April 6th. Shit. I'm 83. Yeah. So Min- minus one. Minus, minus one. one. Oh, that's what I meant to say. Fifth. Sorry. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So uh, I was, when I saw that, I was like, A, that's cool. And then B, thinking about where I was uh, in the 90s compared to where you were. So like you were, you had a much more uh, clear sense of like what music was uh, in the 90s. So that made me wonder, like, where did you land? Because I know you were obviously playing in hardcore bands and stuff like that in the early 90s, but I was curious what your take was at that age for like all, you know, like the grunge wave, like once the, once the glam stuff started moved, moved out and then the grunge stuff came in, like, were you into that stuff or were you like already so dialed into hardcore? Maybe you were checked out. I was curious. Uh, I was, that's my phase when I was too hardcore for my own good. Oh, Anything (laughs) that was popular, get out of here. Anybody that used to be in a hardcore band, AKA, uh, Rage Against the Machine, but now you moved on. Get out of here. Walter and Quicksand got a total pass. He could do whatever he wants, but like Orange 9, Into Another, all that stuff. Even Civ, I was like, you know, I had the, you're betraying the scene. All all the corny things you could think of that I look back now and laugh at myself. But I was so dialed in, every 100% hardcore. All that other stuff was weak and posers and so grunge it's funny like uh two weeks ago i texted my brother who's the person that got me into everything and i was like you're not going to believe this i'm watching a uh nirvana documentary so that for me still like i've people may think this is a lie but i've never what's the big nirvana album never mind never mind yeah I don't think I've ever listened to it front. I probably know the the hits, but I've, I've never heard. Never mind. You definitely Not, know side a <laughs> sunny day, real estate, one of the greatest bands ever, but yeah, I was, you know, like I was just so, and there was so much amazing hardcore coming out. Then you didn't, I didn't need any of that stuff. And I was closed minded and a little, uh, stuck up hardcore kid no i i dude i i 100 would understand that though because like you're you're already engulfed in like a total subculture so like what yeah what do you need that for but i'd also be i mean like did it ever blow your mind as like you're a dialed in hardcore kid to see like uh uh like any of the members of nirvana wearing any punk or hardcore shirts was that ever like a talking point like whoa like that dude's wearing like a you know i don't even uh ssd shirt or something like that you know what i'm saying like did that ever click with anybody or didn't pay attention whatsoever all fueling the fire of hatred 
(laughs) (laughs) Hatred is a strong word, but you know, it would just be like, oh, him trying to trying to pretend he's still part of this. Yeah, and I mean, what what did I know? You know, totally watching that documentary. I, there, so many podcasts and documentaries and stuff shed so much light on things I wouldn't know. So, you know, it was just very close minded. No, I feel it. I mean, it's like, yeah, I didn't know. I watched a, there was a great Pearl Jam documentary that uh, Cameron Crowe did like 10 years ago at this point or something like that. And, you know, coming to find out like how actually influential, influential like Fugazi was to Pearl Jam is like you would have never known that shit. Like when you listen to the music they're making, but then you look at, you know, their ethos and like how they're running their band and stuff like that. And like at one point, one of the members is going through a seven inches and he like has all of the original minor threat seven inches. And you're just, and they're like not even in sleeves. You're just like, you fucking crazy person. Like those are like fucking $3,000, seven inches. That's insane. Um, but yeah, like it's, yeah, it's just so funny to think about that time. And um, yeah, again, I was so curious how you, like where you were at as a, as a young person during that wave. Cause you were obviously so much more coherent as a, as a person than I was at the time. And I was really open minded too because I loved in, in the underground. I love Split Lip, Falling Forward, Sunny Day Real Estate, Lifetime, one of my favorite bands ever, Texas The Reason. So it wasn't like I wanted to sit around and like punch holes through walls all day. Sure. I yeah. just, I guess, and it stuck with me because I'm still a part of this, but I was just really. When you find the underground and it becomes part of your life, you kind of, I wasn't ready to open my mind up to, to bigger things. I just wanted to stay focused on this. And uh, yeah, musically, I was open because I could take it in any direction. I'll yeah. listen to like Stigmata and the next thing I'll put on is like the Jazz June. Totally different worlds but I just wasn't open to anything big or major. And you know how it is. You want to keep those things to yourself and think, you know, this secret society, the secret code. And I was just way too closed off to anything, you know? And then like, I'd have the people in school come in and be like, that Metallica one song that that's so that's like a mosh pit. And I'd be like, get the fuck out of here. You know, (laughs) (laughs) did, uh, what, what I mean, you meant you know you've mentioned a few bands that were obviously like uh, more in like the emo world and stuff like that. Was what was your introduction to getting into that stuff? Was it just because it was often guys who played in hardcore bands? Now they're starting this like softer side, and you're like like opening up to it, or like was there a certain band that did it for you? I would think it was just such a natural flow. I, I would have to credit. Walter and Quicksand for a lot of it, and even Moondog before Quicksand. I would have to credit Split Lip and all that stuff coming out of Louisville. Uh, those were just hardcore bands. Falling Forward, like like my old band Despair would play a sh- play shows with Split Lip. All the festivals would have Lifetime and, and Snapcase and Strife and Earth Crisis and Coalesce. Like you could take it in every direction, but those were just hardcore kids to me and hardcore bands to me. I love the early get up kids stuff. That's where it got almost away from hardcore, but 
I w- uh, just guessing. I would guess those people you, came from hardcore, and I know sure. played with hardcore bands. I, I, if you looked at early Get Up Kids interviews, maybe they called themselves a hardcore band. I'm I'm not really sure, but yeah, it was so. It was one thing. It was one thing. Yeah, the ang- the angst was certainly there, and like, yeah, I mean, with with all those Kansas or, or you know, uh, yeah, Kansas City kids, it's like. I mean, uh, the drummer of Coalesce was the keyboard player in uh, in Get Up Kids, so right. it's like there you go. You know, it's like all oh, that is so <laughs> so closely tied. Um, what was uh? Do you remember the first album that you bought with your own money that you were like, oh, I gotta own this? Uh, can I give you like five different answers, or is that crazy? I love it. Yeah, no, I'm down. So. I think the first record I ever bought was a Kiss, Kiss Alive 2 at a garage sale. But I okay. think that was only because of the art. Um, Fair. So I pr- probably gave some lady a quarter and she gave me Kiss Alive 2. After that, uh, the first records I bought were, I remember buying ACDC, uh, Back in Black, Iron Maiden, Number of the Beast, stuff like that. Uh, which so, both those records you, I still love. You mentioned uh, kind of eye rolling Metallica. Did you were you into Metallica as a kid or no? Oh yeah, okay, I yeah, I yeah, loved yeah. Metallica. I still love okay. the early Metallica. But when they got when one got on MTV, and yeah. I got along with pretty much everyone in my high school because I I was a fucking weirdo, but I smoked weed with all the, the, the weed smokers. I yeah. played sports with all the jocks. I don't necessarily say I was best friends with all these people, but I got along with everybody. But when all these jocks and people I played, I only played sports my freshman year. Cause once I started just caring about hardcore, I forgot sports. But all these people that I had a little bit of relationship when they were like, yeah, fucking mosh pits. Yeah, that shit was whatever they would say. I'd, <laughs> you know, I'd be like, all right, Metallica might be crossing the line here. They might they might yeah. be losing me. But um, but I suppose, yeah, I mean, there's also the the important to comment that probably the Metallica records you owned before Injustice for All, they're obviously much more thrashier and like would make more sense with uh with you liking Iron Maiden and and stuff like that. Yeah. So that makes sense. <laughs> and then the f- the first hardcore uh I think the first hardcore records I bought in in one day was the Sick of it all, seven inch, the chain of strength, seven inch, the no front answer, seven inch and the side by side, seven inch. This was just when my brother. So my brother is the person that got me into everything and he was really into punk. And I never really got the punk thing, the the look, the anarchy. That that was not me. But then when we kind of gravitated and started to find out about hardcore, that was more my speed. And uh, we went to the record store here, Home of the Hits in Buffalo. And I just found the seven-inch section. And they probably had the the dudes doing the coolest jumps on the cover. And I just <laughs> grabbed them. <laughs> okay, I got, three, I got three questions involving this. One, uh, how close in age are you two? He is my stepbrother. Okay. 
and he is eight months younger than me, something like that. Oh, wow. So super yeah. close. Okay. That's awesome. That's awesome. I was going to say, I didn't know if it was like the older brother thing where like anything he says is like gospel kind of a situation or or what that was. But that's actually awesome that you're so close because then it's like you're probably showing each other stuff that you're discovering and, and whatever. Or you're on that same kind of journey together. Um, so that's one. Two, is that record store still there? Can I go back to one for a minute? Yeah, please. Uh Truth be told, I grew up with my mom and my two sisters. Like Buffalo is a pretty small city. Okay. Um, I, th- I think it's the second biggest city in New York state, but it's still a pretty small city. And I grew up out in the middle of nowhere, like in the woods. So like a half hour from Buffalo, but if you drive for a half hour, you're out in the middle of nowhere. So then when my mom, or excuse me, my dad got remarried to my stepmom who already ha- had my stepbrother from a previous marriage he was living in the city so he had the uh he was more up on what was going down in the streets so for sure, for sure yeah eventually i moved in with them uh and that's when he was already hip to things like punk hip-hop and stuff like that so he really put me on the path to everything so if you okay. hear this jay you ruined my fucking life <laughs> um the record store is not there sadly oh that's bad yeah i yeah. i figured i was gonna hear that as an answer uh did it last uh up until like you know the the napster days or was it uh was it gone before that i was out of the city when it closed in 2010 when we did uh when we put out keepers of the faith yeah um Century, we were on Century Media at that time, and they they filmed a little documentary documentary of me in Buffalo pointing out some places. So in 2010, I think it was already gone. I could ask Jay; yeah. he's shaking his head. Yes, you know, Jay, you're lying. You told me you weren't going to be listening to this, but you're listening, anyways. <laughs> to 2010, it was gone. So, uh, and it was it was on Elmwood Avenue in Buffalo. And it was a house they converted into a record store. And I can still picture all the shirts on the walls and all the records I bought there. It was fucking amazing. And now it's gone. That's too bad. All right. And part three, you talked about buying seven inches. Uh, Was there, was this like, were you guys playing records on like your parents' record player? Or did you guys have your own record player? I mean, it's just, I'm always so fascinated i think it's so sick when like people have seven you know are going to buy seven inches at a young age me and my brother shared a bedroom we had bunk beds even through high school we had bunk beds eventually my brother moved into the basement because he probably wanted his own space which was a that was a great move um oh yeah but i i think we had a turntable in our room before we get off the first record thing can i bring up one more thing Please. So back when I was getting, you know, I was buying some ACDC records and stuff like that. This is when I lived with my mom and my two sisters. My mom was dating a guy um, named Dave. I can't remember his his last name. And he was a pretty, pretty cool guy. Um, I was like the bat boy for his softball team. And, and he would take me to sporting events and let me sip his beer. So he helped ruin my life, too. 
But uh, <laughs> one day he just handed me the first two Black Sabbath records on uh, vinyl, the self-titled and the uh, uh, Paranoid. And I mean, over time I've learned everything heavy. I mean, this is not factual, but I'd say it all comes back to Black Sabbath. And that was a, what a fucking cool move that was. Absolutely. I wonder (laughs) if he just like saw it in you, like was like, this kid is going to connect with this or if that, or you know, what the motivation was. I love it though. That's awesome. That's, that's a a life-changing move. You asked me the first record I bought. So I didn't buy those. He uh, gave them to me, but if we were on like a commercial, it would be like priceless. Ding. (laughs) um what was the uh what was the first concert you ever went to this is a really weird story um okay hit me so we we found out a little bit about my brother and myself so this is i want to say 1986 or something like that i went to see rat and uh, Bon Jovi open up for Rat at the Memorial Auditorium where the Sabres play. And my brother, we were not living together. My brother went to it too. And coincidentally, he was seated like right behind me. So we were like, no holy way. shit. Yeah, yeah, it was really cool. So first couple concerts were like that. I saw Motley Crue open up for Y&T or maybe it was the other way around. I can't remember. Rat and Bon Jovi. Uh... I did, uh, this was, never mind. I was going to bring in Metallica. I saw them on the Injustice for All tour, but I was already at many hardcore shows by then. But, um, so okay. early stuff was those. Yeah. Uh, That's uh, glam metal things. For sure. Did you, uh, did you just roll in like in the clothes you were wearing or did you like, did you get yourself like spruced up in, in some metal gear for those shows? I was never like a full on, I don't know if dirt, dirt bag's the right term, but you didn't, like uh, tease your hair. You didn't have like big no. teased up hair for the show. <laughs> no, but I probably had no a, a cool quiet riot shirt or something and uh, stuff like that. I yeah, literally, ever... I have yeah, looked the same way I look. Like if you took my gut and shrank it, and like moved my gut and put a little hair back here. I looked exactly the same since I was like 10 years old. For sure. For sure. Yeah. I mean, every memory or every photo I've ever seen of you, it's like you've had the, the super <laughs> short or shaved head. So yeah, that's a smart move to, uh, to have never committed to a hairstyle when you were, uh, when you were younger. Hey there, do you need to get some merch printed? My incredible sponsors over at Anchorfish Printing has a great deal going on right now. You can get 100 soft style shirts for only 499 bucks. Do the math. That's a great deal. For details, email Michael at anchorfishprinting.com or shoot him a call at 773-340-1286. You can also visit anchorfishprinting.com and see what else they have to offer. They are a one-stop shop for all your merch needs. And don't forget to mention the first ever podcast when you place your order. Do you find yourself ever putting on any of those records? Like, do you still connect with any of that stuff in like a nostalgia sense? Or are you like so moved on beyond that like 80s dirtbag metal stuff? Uh, Jordan and my band 
like some of that stuff. So uh, I don't listen to it, but sometimes if a conversation pops up, I can get a couple jabs in with my knowledge of <laughs> glam. I, I mean, some of it's really good. I, I really like the, the first GNR record appetite for destruction. ACDC yeah. and Iron Maiden, they're a little bit different. They're, yeah, those they're... are amazing bands. Um, the glam thing. I think once I found hardcore, the same way I was judging Nirvana, I looked back at that and it was like, this was it's gotta get really... out of here. <laughs> <laughs> it's only youth of today, nothing else. Yeah. Do you know a band no band I have like a soft spot for? Did you ever fuck with the band Grim Reaper? See you in hell, my friend. Yeah, is dude, that, that song's that good. Hit? Yeah, <laughs> that song's good. What I have this funny memory that because you know, no, no, I'm so sorry for how you know all the Grim Reaper fans out there that are going to hear this, but like, I feel like that band never made it because they sort of look like they were like the roadies of the band that somehow got a record deal. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> like, like they they there was no like star player. Uh, look, you know, there was no uh ten on, in that band, shall we say? So like, uh. I remember Beavis and Butthead. Uh, there's an episode where all of a sudden a Grim Reaper video comes on and it starts with one of them being like, oh God, it's Grim Reaper. <laughs> oh shit. Like, <laughs> and that's just like burned in my head. So like I own two of those records because also I'm I'm amazed by the fact that like how often they use the word hell. I think there's like see you in hell and then like back to hell. It's like they were just a one trick pony, but it's fine, <laughs> you know? I think I only know that one song. Yeah, it's good. I think I have a flexi seven inch of it too. That came in like a cereal box, which is sick. Are you like a crazy record collector? I am. Yeah, I am. Uh, you, you would be disgusted by how little I have. For as long as I've been involved in music shit, I've got. Yeah. You could fit my records in like a few boxes. Did you never care to own your own stuff? Do you have your own stuff? Some of it. Some of it? Uh, I had uh, my biggest regret is I had a, uh, so I, I, I don't even want to say I collected records, but when I was into hardcore, you only could buy records if you wanted to listen to it. There was no other way. So I would buy records. When I moved to L.A., I sold a bunch of my records just to make money. I had the uh, Together Comp, the Rev Together Comp test press, yeah. which I oh, could shit. imagine is worth a lot of money. And I had like, yeah. I had a lot of good stuff because I'd just get it when it came out. So I had all the cool covers and colors and and I, so, I sold a lot of it to the drummer of that uh, band Abnegation from Erie. Okay. And, you know, I, I probably sold like judge on schism for 10 20 dollars or or whatever and at that but at that time there was it just no one it just thought was, about you didn't know stuff. yeah you like there was no there was no point to be like i like you don't know what any of that stuff is actually worth in that moment or what it's going to be worth in the future so it's like yeah you just need fucking gas money or if i was going to sell it there was no way to tell the whole fucking world in one second. I've got this record. Who wants it? Like it was totally. just. I knew this kid yeah. bought records, and he probably gave me two hundred dollars for twenty thousand dollars worth of records. Now, 
Oh my God. I could mean, we please, could we please change the subject? Could we, but no, I'm just joking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm haunted uh, for the person. I remember going to, uh, I went to the last Hellfest that actually happened. And um, there was a guy who was like selling rec- his own personal record collection at a merch table. And it was the first table I walked up to. And within like, within like 10 minutes of being into that festival, I probably spent like $200 just on this guy's record collection. And like all the records I bought from that guy are definitely worth uh, probably about 40 times what I paid for them. And he was, <laughs> he just didn't get, he just didn't seem to give a shit. He sort of looked like a guy who was just wanting to like get the, get his, uh, his childhood out of the way. <laughs> but, but it, yeah, I thank him forever for that, you know, on Un- unburden himself from the insanity unburden himself. You know, I was uh, when I, well, I have my set of questions and I and I have a first instrument. So I didn't know until last night when I was doing some research, you play drums in bands. Talk to me about was drums your first instrument. Yes. Even before I mastered these beautiful vocal cords, I. Uh, my brother, I don't know if he's had a bass first or a guitar, but that means I'm going to drums. And yeah. uh, I played drums in a few Buffalo bands that were actually really good, uh, Fade Away and Against All Hope. And if anyone's hearing this, I'll just give a one-minute props to these bands because these are two Buffalo bands that are really unknown. Against All Hope's like a mix of Dag Nasty, Iron Maiden, and Buffalo, and they're fucking amazing. Fade Away's kind of like Strife. Um I was not good. I, when these band these bands were both already going and then got me in the band, I definitely brought them down a level and then they got rid of me and they went back up a level. But uh yeah, I I I could sort of play the drums and I enjoyed playing the drums cuz being a frontman is great when it's a great show, but when it's not, oof. It's tough. Yeah. So uh yeah. That's the uh, all the years I've been doing this. I I've never played guitar, bass. Nope. <laughs> Have uh, well, let's uh, let's just go to the drums real quick. So, what uh, did you 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 said your brother's playing uh playing bass or something? So you're like, I want a drum set. So did uh, did you like take lessons? Uh, did were you self taught? What was the deal? Self taught. Uh, assembled a drum set from pieced together from wherever I could get it. Uh, I think I really can't get in trouble this for this anymore. I, I've told this story on a different podcast, I believe. We lived on the street of my high school, so we used to walk to high school. And this is, this is terrible on so many levels, what I'm about to say. After school, I used to go to the music room in the winter and throw whatever piece of drum I needed out the back door, <laughs> cover it in snow. And at night we'd go and get it and I'd have a new symbol or drum for my drum set. Yeah. <laughs> That's so hey. horrible to, to do like to, to do to your school is fine, but not the music program, <laughs> Leave the music <laughs> program alone. <laughs> but so that was the type hey. of drum set I had in, uh, when you have a drum set like that, you really don't take lessons. And that's probably why I was not very good. Um, look, 
the the important thing, Scott, is that you realize that it wasn't the coolest thing to do. When you're young, you're stupid. You don't know what you just need that you just need to rock. I understand. I completely understand. Did uh did, did when I was looking at the credits for those uh for the fadeaway records that uh, did you actually play on those uh on the the split seven inch I think I saw and then also maybe an EP? Did you play on those or no? Yeah, uh they have two demos that I did not play on. Okay. Uh, I played on a split with a band called Two Line Filler, and then we did a, a, a CD-only release on a uh, a label called Conquer the World Records, who also put out Chokehold and Empathy, if anyone knows who those wonderful bands are. Yeah, we'll, we're going to put a pin in this. We'll, we'll circle back to this. So uh, <laughs> what was the first band that you ever did? Was it for playing drums or was it singing? Bands that I'd like to talk about, or you want me to give you the real answer? I'm, we're we're all about honesty here, but uh, you can <laughs> you can edit yourself the best you can if you if you're really really ashamed of something. So, my brother, myself, and some local weirdos living in the suburbs of Buffalo, kind of a nicer suburb. Uh, started a band. I think the first band we had was called the no names and we would play battle of the bands or maybe a party, a backyard party. I honestly think it was probably punk rock, but I don't really even know what it sounded like. And you were drumming. Yes. After that, I was drumming for a band called lost cause, which was, more of the same, but definitely more in a punk vein, more of a, a a meaner edge to it. And that was myself, my brother, a, a singer named Eric, and our guitarist was this guy, Brian Flipowitz, who also went on hmm, – I'm not sure – I. He was also in Against All Hope is what I'm getting at. I don't know if he was in that before or after this. Uh, And he was also in Slugfest with me and my brother. Um, That was Lost Cause. And then Slugfest is the first band that people know me for and that I think about. (laughs) Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Did – what was the first show? So it sounds like, you know, you mentioned playing like Battle of the Bands and stuff like that. Um, so when it came to singing, what was the first show that you ever played with that you sang? You ready for this? I'm ready. Slugfest, first show ever, River Rock Cafe, Buffalo, New York, opening for Judge. Wow. How'd you get the gigs? That's a great question, and I've got a great answer. So, (laughs) uh, the first incarnation of slugfest uh if anyone listening to this knows slugfest and they're from outside of buffalo or close to buffalo they probably think of slugfest as a hardcore band everyone with short hair you know generic traditional hardcore whatever we were the truth is slugfest started with me and my brother going to the river rock cafe all the time and we'd go to every show we could. We we would go to punk shows, death metal shows, hardcore shows. And the guy that 
the the owner's son was the the person that ran the place. He did the sound, he booked the shows, and we would see him all the time. And eventually we said, we want to start a band. Do you know anyone that plays drums? He's like, I play drums. So Slugfest started practicing on the stage of the River Rock Cafe. Me and my brother, our friend John Geib from our high school, who had nothing to do with hardcore. He just was a loved weed, but could rip it. He was like a Randy Rhodes wannabe wacko. And John Raddus, who was pro, we were probably 14, 15. He was an adult. I don't know how old he was. He brought in on bass his friend whose name is or was, his name was Andy. But his n- name was Fuckem, F-U-C-K-E-M. And he <laughs> always wore this shirt called Fuckem. He also played in a Kiss cover band, Makeup and All. Early Slugfest shows, we would cover Black Sabbath, uh, Symptoms of the Universe. We, we would play our songs, hardcore songs. Yeah. We would also cover God of Thunder by Kiss and fuck them would breathe fire at at uh, early Slugfest shows. This is the reason why Cleveland Hardcore hates everyone. Cleveland hated everyone. Integrity, Ringworm, Confront. They lived to hate, but they loved Slugfest. And that's why I've been <laughs> friends with all those guys for so long. Cause they would be like this fucking band cover. Cause everyone in Cleveland loves kiss. They'd like, they cover kiss and breathe, fi- blow fire. I'm in. So that's, that, the most, that's... <laughs> I, I'm, I'm just stunned oh. by this. I mean, there's so many things to unpack, but like the, wait, fact wait, 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 wait. that's how we got the judge show. Cause our drummer booked the shows there. It wasn't cause we were good. Okay. There you go. There you go. That makes sense. That makes I mean that's how you do it sometimes. Um the uh I love this is like a this is like it's like a pretty common thing where like a lot of people's first bands like those high school bands or whatever it is it's like it's because you just you end up having members that like have nothing in common musically but like you just need people to play so it's like um, you know, it's like why if like someone starts a ska band, they're like, I want to be in a ska band, but they just like ask the guys who play in like the school band who play horns to be in the band. But they're like, we don't listen to ska. We just happen to play the horn. You know, it's like or like the the it's or more common is like the punk band that needs a guitar player. But the only guitar player in high school is the like Hesher. So it's like that's the exactly what we did. Yeah. So it's like you you what ends up happening which is sick is like they bring in like the metal influence and then you end up getting sort of like that weird cross-pollination of different styles but i am just stunned by every aspect you just said (laughs) about this band how long did that quote unquote sorry gimmick last of the blowing fire were you blown were you like was there shows where you're like i don't think tonight's a blowing fire night guys (laughs) I don't know if this is true, but I'm saying every night was a blowing fire night. <laughs> I don't know. Did I you do have, know. Like, did you have like club owners being like pulling their hair out? Just like, what the fuck are you doing on my, on my, no, my cause basement? we only played the river rock and the club owner oh. was behind us on the drums. Oh, but okay. I do, I do want to 
uh, take this up to the next level. We did play a show on Halloween once, and Fuckum had a Kiss cover band show the same night, so he played the Slugfest show in costume. Fuck <laughs> yes! Oh my god! I this is I'm I'm stunned. Look, uh, what I'm getting at, Scott, is like I'm you know like. Hats off, you know, Tara's been around for a long time. You guys have done some cool stuff, like, of course. But, like, I do kind of think your your pinnacle was, was Slugfest at this point. You've just convinced me. <laughs> the demos may say the, differently. Oh, man. Um, so, what, uh, bu- 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 so what about um, recording? What was the first time you ever recorded? I mean, like, look, when I was researching all of this stuff, like, I'm obviously blown away by how active you have been throughout all of these years and, like, the amount of bands you've been a part of. Um, So this is when I said put a pin in it. Like, was your first time recording playing drums or was your first time recording doing vocals? Um, Definitely vocals. Oh, no, no. Drums, drums. Drums, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. I think the, I don't think the No Names ever recorded. I think Lost Cause recorded in my parents' basement. Our friend Jeremy DeFiore was a hip-hop dj producer and uh he had like a a four track i think or an eight track or you could split the four track to an eight track and he came over and mic'd everything and i haven't heard this in 30 years i'm sure it sounds terribly amazing um (laughs) but that's the first recording to move on to slugfest This is such a bizarre thing that I was talking to someone about semi-recently. Our first demo, uh, it's called the Build Up Demo. I think it's 1990, Build Up 90. Um, So the first Slugfest demo, this is so weird. I don't know why. And then I'm going to add on to it. We recorded, excuse me, at the River Rock Cafe, so at a venue, on the stage, I think we played live all together, not, not a live show, but I think yeah. we all played together at the same time through the board or somehow and recorded it. That was our demo. It didn't sound really good for some, and I don't know any other bands that did this in Buffalo or anywhere. Most bands go to yeah. a studio. The second Slugfest demo, which is I don't know what it's called. We, the, after that, the River Rock Cafe closed down. There was a, a venue, Randall Studios. For some fun, now we have a new lineup too. We have the River Rock Cafe, Fuckham's out. John Radis is out. The, the River Rock people are out. We're all like hardcore kids. We decide to do the same fucking thing at Randall Studios. I don't know why. I um, I should probably ask my brother because he has a pretty good memory. He'd probably have some insight. But yeah, those were the. F- you they, still choose to like do it all live with you, like doing vocals live, like probably using an so. SM58 or something. <laughs> I think so. Wow. And then the last thing I'll put on this is uh, the first time I ever had a vinyl uh, yeah. was the Slugfest 7 inch, which the singer of Chokehold, Chris Logan, put out. And we went to a studio in Buffalo called, this could be wrong, but I think it's Mark's Studio. Okay. And uh, 
got the thumbs up from the studio guy here. It's uh, it's because Zero Tolerance went there, so we wanted to go there. Slugfest towards the end before we broke up was pretty good. Our live show was yeah. good. We were getting to be pretty good. But somehow this recording, it really came out good. Yeah. And it probably sounds better than we were. And that's like the first time I had a decent recording on vinyl. And that was like when Chris put that in my hands, I was like, this is the greatest day of my life. Yeah. Is that a, what was that label? Is it structure record? Yes. Yeah. I believe they put out. Yeah. Oh, go ahead. No, it's to say, because he obviously went on to do what a uh, good, good, uh, oh my God. Fellow, good want, fellow. Good fellow, thank you. Yeah, that, that ended up being his label later. But I was looking at this up where like Structure seemingly only put out maybe like 10 things or something like that. Like I saw there was like maybe Bloodlet on there or something like that. Um, but yeah, I, I was going to guess too. I think it was Slugfest, oh, okay. Bloodlet, a cassette comp. I could be wrong, but if I was sure. uh, getting, getting, uh, interrogated that's what i would say okay okay um was i imagine chokehold was probably pretty active already at that point was that uh obviously in like chokehold is a canadian band and i i assume the buffalo um you know sort of uh toronto scene and everything like that was probably pretty incestuous like was getting chris logan to put that out like like a badge of honor for you guys at that point I think it was more like this is so cool. Our friends putting it out. Uh, sure. I, I, I feel like at that time, chokehold and slugfest were kind of on the same level. Like equals. Uh, chokehold. Okay, chokehold definitely did a lot more in in our. Uh, I don't, more infamous than slugfest for sure uh, that's not what i'm trying to say but at that time they would come and like what you're saying we would play shows together all the time we were just like peers and for him yeah. to co- want to invest money and put a record out for us it was like it couldn't get any better than this our friend's gonna do it so i think uh yeah i think it was more like that <laughs> just for for people who uh are listening that um know what it's like these days to uh, pre-order a record and then have it not be done from the manufacturer like you know for a year and a half at this point uh do you remember how quickly you got back that seven inch once it went to the plant i'm sure it was like fucking a month i hate to ruin your your question it, yeah i don't think it was because of the plant but it i <laughs> i could be wrong but i think yeah. we got the records at our last show Oh, no way. I think because things transpired and we broke up, and I think we got it at our last show. But I don't think it was because of the plants. I think it was because maybe Chris didn't exactly know what he was doing, and uh, it it took a little while. Yeah, it's a learning experience for everybody. (laughs) I I can only imagine. I can only imagine. Um, So uh, what was the first tour you ever did? Was it with Slugfest? No. Slugfest okay. only played Buffalo, Erie. I don't even know if we played Toronto. Chokeholds from Hamilton, okay. and they had yeah. a house. No, 
actually, Chris brought us up to Hamilton to play in a bowling alley. That might have been our first out of town show, but there was a a, a, play, a house up there, the house for Zach. I saw Conviction there. I saw Earth Crisis there. I saw Mayday there. They did great shows. Chokehold shows there were amazing. Um, we played Rochester, Syracuse, but I don't even think we've ever did a weekend. I don't even know if we ever did two shows in a row. Um, wow, okay. Despair was the first band I ever did a tour with. Could be Chokehold. It could have been Chokehold. Chokehold took us on tour pretty early. Uh, Snapcase took us on a tour. We also were on Trustkill, so we did some stuff with Brothers Keeper and Harvest. But I want to say the first one was maybe Chokehold. Okay. Do you do you remember taking to it pretty quickly? Like, did you enjoy it? Like, was it something you found very exciting? Being at a hardcore show in a different city every night for a month was like the coolest thing in the world. And I like, there was no, at that time there was no stress. I, I didn't know what a set time was. I didn't know <laughs> what a backstage was. Cause I would never be back. I was moshing for every band. I didn't know what a guarantee was. All I knew was I was driving from A to B and I was going to meet people and be able to fucking mosh and that be at a hardcore show every night. It was, it was the greatest thing in the world. That's all I ever wanted. I, back when, um, I think when I was in against all hope, we did, it was against all hope and, uh, an, another Buffalo band called Discontent. We did a road trip from Buffalo to Albany, Saratoga Springs. So five, six hours. And we all drove there in like three or four cars, played the show and came back. That was like my first real overnight road trip. And yeah. I can just remember it being the funnest thing. Like all we did was <laughs> drink coffee and turn up like music and mosh in the car and pull over and <laughs> pee on weird things and and stuff yeah. like that and that was like the first taste i have of if i could do that 30 days in a row it'd be the greatest thing in the world and then starting with despair i got to do it and now i've done it with terror eight million times and yeah. i love my house i love staying home <laughs> uh, something i found pretty interesting about despair uh, and I could be wrong about this, but I want to say that that Pattern Life record is the first LP that Trustkill put out. From what I was looking at, it looked like he had only Josh had only done seven inches and comps before that. So Despair was potentially the first LP. Does that sound correct? Is a full length CD an LP? Because okay, sure, he yeah, only yeah, put it out on CD. Oh, first okay. full length. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I think so. And uh, I'm trying to think how this all had Josh was going, if, if you want to know the story of that, but I, th Please, I think, yeah, you're yeah, right. yeah. yeah. So I, I believe uh, Josh was going to school in Syracuse and this is uh, early to mid nineties where Syracuse Buffalo had a great scene too. All these places did Rochester can't like Hamilton and Toronto uh, Buffalo had an amazing scene, but, Syracuse, this is when the vegan revolution was starting to pop off and, and shows there were so good. 
So I was driving to Syracuse at least once or twice a month for a show. And Josh came from New Jersey and was going to the school there. And I think he started Trustkill with that uh, Embrace cover record. I think that's Trustkill number one. That's correct. Yeah. And I think it's it started, I think maybe from the start, he was trying to do it a little more professionally, like his ads looked really good. And Oh, actually, he added the fanzine first, Trustkill fanzine. And I think he probably had some maybe slugfest or despair pictures in those. So there was some sort of minimal relationship. And I think despair started and I probably sent him the first seven inch and just said, hey, I see you're doing this label. Would you want to put this out? And uh, he said, yeah. And that that was... That was a pretty big deal to to man that full that dis, the despair full length that you brought up sounds pretty bad, but to have a full length record out on a label that was trying to push and do stuff was really cool at the time. Yeah, I can imagine absolutely. Um, and then you know it's funny I, when obviously doing the research I didn't realize that uh, that um, you had already put out a release called Buried Alive and then the band after that was called buried alive was that like a wink wink nudge nudge sort of uh inspiration to do that so the slugfest seven inch is called the buried alive seven inch yeah i think when buried alive was started without me they that band was all going without me i said no to being the singer like three times and finally i realized they were really good I, i was just I didn't want to be in a band after Slugfest and Despair. Both those bands like started doing stuff, started doing stuff, and totally people quit. Yeah. Both bands. So I was like jaded. I was like, I don't want to do another band. So those guys started it and got the whole thing going and that sound. I had really nothing to do with the sound or anything. Um, but I imagine either I or one of the other band members presented that as the name and everyone agreed. So, and the despair, if anyone listening to this knows the band conviction from uh, Hershey, Pennsylvania, it's kind of turmoil before they were turmoil. They are one of the most underrated slept on bands in hardcore. They're so, Oh, they're so fucking good. They have a seven inch on watermark. They have a first seven inch on smorgasbord record. It's decent. They have a record on watermark that is so good. And on that record, there's a song called despair. So we definitely rip that off for despair. (laughs) I love that. That's awesome. That's awesome. Um, yeah, the, uh, and then, so the death of the perfect world record, um, you ended up recording that with Steve Evitz. Was that your first time working with him? Yes, and a funny side note. Yeah. One of my biggest regrets in not I've got many one of my biggest <laughs> regrets in hardcore. Sure. Uh uh Despair just did a full US tour with Hatebreed. On that this is like 95 96 96 I think. On that tour Tony Victory flew out to uh LA Riverside the barn in Riverside and, and signed, I saw them physically sign the contract after that tour. So we had just spent six weeks together. They were going to Steve Abbott's, uh, what's the studio called? Tracks oh, East, uh, Tracks East, yeah. East to record their debut record. 
and Jamie asked me to come and sing on it. I would have had to taken a bus and I planned on doing it. And he asked me to sing on uh, Mark My Words. So, uh-huh. And I, I don't think Hatebreed's ever had a guest spot at any of their records. So Not that I can think of. Yeah, sure. I said, I'll be there. I bailed on the bus. <laughs> and now I'm blacklisted by Hatebreed. <laughs> but yeah, yes, um, at that time, uh, Buried Alive was really in. I, I wonder what was first, the Buried Alive record or All Out War for those who for those who crucified. Um, like like release wise on victory or who went to the studio first, because that was like, oh, sure. Around the same All time. Out War, All Out War reached the sky death threat. That was our peers that we would play with every weekend it was one of those bands somewhere yeah um so snapcase might have met there before i I don't know the timeline but definitely the hatebreed record once hatebreed went there and it sounded that good everyone wanted to go there also lifetime had gone there and everyone in buried alive loves lifetime um that eat the first e-town uh time to shine was done there so that studio just sounded so good and uh, yeah i was wondering if it was i was wondering if it was uh your friends going there and saying good things the sonic quality that was coming out of there or or if it was some sort of like oh if you signed a victory you're gonna go record with steve evitz kind of thing or if it was just maybe all three total guess brummel Probably suggested it because the Hatebreed record was taking over the world. We said we get to go to the same studio that all these bands went to, of course, because I know I know when Tony first heard the record, and I, I mean, I've always had a good relationship with Tony, maybe because I'm sure. as crazy as him, but uh, I called him or, or he called me, and his his quote was, "This doesn't sound like Hatebreed." That's what he said. <laughs> I was like, did you listen to the demo in the first seven yeah. inch? Like, <laughs> yeah. Like what did you, <laughs> that's tough. That's tough. Um, yeah. I, uh, I just had the privilege uh, of having Steve Evitz um, mix our last record. And uh, I was just, I just had such a great time, like just kind of punishing him about, you know, all the records he had done. Or whatever and he's you know he's happy to share and tell stories and stuff like that and that definitely was like a little like notch for me where i was like oh fuck like get to just be a part in some way or another be a part of this like you know history with this guy um and i just always get psyched to see like certain records that were done by him and and all that sort of stuff did you have a did, how was that recording vocals for that record for you i can remember um him pushing me super hard I the my only memory is I'd like do a take and he'd be like, do it again. And I'd be like, he'd play, I'd be like, why? He'd be like, just do it again. And I'd be like, well, what do you want me to do? He'd be like, just do it again. And I wasn't, I wasn't used to anyone caring at all. And totally. uh, I, I've reconnected with him on Instagram a little bit. And he told me that I was mad at him, that he wouldn't let me drink in the studio. I don't remember that, but, um, so it sounds like there was a little bit of headbutting, but okay. I was probably contained and pro- I, I think it was probably just a little bit of, 
I don't remember anything about it except him pushing me vocally sure. and us us coming out of there with that recording and being like whole it's not like bear like I said buried alive is really outside my wheelhouse of what I listen to the the it's really noisy and experimental and uh it's more I'm not like a converge guy I'm I'm like yeah 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 bare bones straight traditional hardcore for the most part yeah but but when those guys started the band i could just hear the power and there was just something about it so to really capture that energy the way steve did it's a it's a it's a great right when baird alive didn't play shows for 20 i don't know how long let's say 20 years and i don't really listen to my bands very often maybe when sure. when the record's about to come out and you want to make sure you are happy yeah. with it but i probably hadn't listened to that record in a long time probably not 20 years but probably like 10 15 Quite years a while sure i had to re-listen to it to learn the songs because we we're gonna play this as hardcore and i remember listening to the whole thing and being like this is fucking good it's, it's really good so <laughs> i was nice like feeling, and also right? Mike Ski from Brothers Keeper did the artwork and it's this uh female's face and it's 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 really outside the box of I would never think of anything like that. I'm surprised that the band agreed to it. It's really weird colors too. It's like peach and it's very strange, but it's like a tannish white. Really, yeah, it's like yeah. Yeah. Really cool too. Like I wouldn't I wouldn't change anything about that record. It's really, really yeah. good. I think the uh, just this is fun for the podcast. Uh, I think the first time that you and I ever had a real conversation was at Sound and Fury. Um, the second year that we had played, you guys were headlining and I pulled you aside and I told you that the first hardcore show that I ever went to, you guys played first. And it was Buried Alive, Scarhead, Candiria, Vision of Disorder at the Troubadour. And... I was a metal kid and I went to that show because I got into VOD because they were on Roadrunner Records, right? So like it was at a point in my life where like I still didn't totally know all of the differences and subcultures and stuff because I was, you know, pretty, I was like, I think 15 or something like that at the show. And my buddy and I watched Buried Alive from the balcony because we were scared and just seeing the reaction it just like it was the it just was my first real introduction to that and it like completely blew our minds and then from then on it was like we our lives started to change and like shift in direction or whatever um i don't know if you remember me telling you that story but it was like a pretty pretty impactful moment in my life i don't remember and i'm glad you retold it cuz that that's something i want to remember that's really cool and you know what's crazy about that think of that lineup you just said vod Scarhead, who at the time, like, really were popping off, fucking Candiria, and then Buried Alive opening in the little ass Troubadour. Troubadour, that's yeah. that's that's a crazy bill. I think we also did the Glass House on that tour. If I'm maybe I would have been driving out to Pomona as a you know probably yeah. not. I was probably excited just to be at the Troubadour for that show. You know, that might have been uh, Buried Alive did. Didn't never toured like terror, but that might have been our first introduction to like get on stage at this time and get 
get the fuck off stage and get your gear and not 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 a diss to VOD at all, but this is VOD's room. Don't go near it. Like a real yeah. deal tour. And uh yeah, it was really cool. I remember I had, on that you know, tour on that tour, the the second night, uh, you know, and, and I I know Isaac pretty well now, but then I didn't know him and everybody knew him and what he was about. The second night on tour, I'm on stage. I don't even think I've said hi to him yet. I'm on stage. I don't know why he picked me, but right before they're about to play, he came up to me and said, hold this and gave me like his wallet and his watch and all this stuff. And I'm like, okay, that's cool that he asked me, but what happens if I lose his wallet or (laughs) what? I don't want this responsibility at all. I should have been like, no, no, yeah. no, 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 yeah. no, 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 no. Yeah. I imagine everybody in the room's head just turns just like, oh man, Scott's got a lot of pressure tonight. Oh my God. That's awesome. That's, that's, that's great. Um, all right. Let's, uh, let's, let's move to tear. Uh, with, um, I remember when low to the low came out, I feel like between terror, well, the demo also, you know, like when the seven inch came out and whatever, um, in LA, it was just like there was an immediate shift in like LA hardcore. Like it was very, very noticeable where you guys came in. It was like you guys, internal affairs, uh, just kind of swept everything else that was happening in town. And it was like something that was like exciting to see happen where it was like <clears throat> all these kids who had swoop hair all of a sudden were cutting their swoop hair and were like, now I like hardcore. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And it was very prominent in the local scene, like especially out in the Valley, like going to shows at the cobalt and stuff like that. Like it was like every single kid I knew was either at the show rocking an internal affairs shirt or a terror shirt and it was just like you it just like i said it just like completely swept the scene um do you have any memories of like of like what it felt like to all of a sudden be the new guy in town and start this band and then like have it kind of instantly pop off locally is it that a beautiful thing what you just said i think it is <laughs> <laughs> well well for me I I didn't really, you know, I've heard this before from other people. Sure. Um and I'm not trying to downplay it or discount it, but but for me I came from the East Coast, so I was very much used to more traditional hardcore and stuff like that. I I don't think I really Of course I knew about 18 Visions and I I broke my hand moshing to 18 Visions when I lived in Buffalo. So I'm not saying I didn't respect or like those bands. But to me, uh, I think it was just me bringing what I had from the East Coast and a little bit older. And I just happened to link up with like Todd and Nick, who were like leading the charge of traditional hardcore in the L.A. area. And we just fused in it. I can't take much credit for it, but musically those two were just, I can remember the first time I saw Nick get on the drums and Todd play. I was like floored. I was like, this is perfect. And then they knew people of their age bracket. They knew bridge nine. 
I knew people of my age bracket from the East Coast, and they had both toured in the East Coast. And it was, and we just had the right attitude too. We were like, we'll just play anywhere, anytime. Early on, 18 Visions asked us to go on tour. We said yes. We weren't like closed minded to that, but we were just going to do our thing. And if we converted anyone to cut their hair, <laughs> that's kind of, <laughs> it's kind of cool, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> um, man, I, something I hadn't thought about, and I don't even know, there's not really a question in here. Terror played, because you were saying you guys played anywhere. <clears throat> Terror played the Vets Hall that my friends and I used to always book shows at in Burbank. Uh, it was a Burbank Vets Hall. Uh, there was a dude named Dino who played in yep. the band Laid to Rest. Remember them? Remember that band? Yeah. He, I think, booked that show. And it's just like crazy to me because that was like three or four blocks from like the house I grew up in. And that to me was just like, this band is everywhere. Can I tell you a story about that show? Please. It was like Champion, Some Kind of Hate. Uh, yes. That's right. I, I can't remember, but... The Distance, maybe, or something? Maybe they were on that show? So, uh, I remember, because I, I never did this before. I've never been straight edge, and I think straight edge is a, a wonderful thing. And anyone that's straight edge... I fully support it and and think it's great. But at that show in particular, I just remember every band getting up there and being like, the song goes out to all the straight edge kids in the room. And after like, uh, let's just say Terror played last. I don't know if we did. But after hearing that from like five bands in a row, I started feeling like, does this mean that I'm less than you because I'm not straight edge? And so when Terror was up there, I said something like uh, something like I'm saying now. I totally respect yeah. straight edge. This isn't like to 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 dog straight edge, but I've been hearing all night everyone saying this is for the straight edge kids. This is for the straight edge kids. Well, I want to say this right here is for the non-straight edge kids because it doesn't make you more hardcore than anyone if you don't drink or if you do drink. It's about going to shows and supporting and like that it's kind of evened out now. There's not as many straight edge kids, but at that time it was a lot of straight edge kids. And like the minority of non straight edge kids were just like, Oh my God, I've been waiting to hear this. (laughs) That's my, that's my memory of that show. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Shout out Burbank. (laughs) People of Burbank. Like, thank you. I've been drunk all night. This is what I needed. Um, that's awesome. That's awesome. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, I still stand by, I did like a, I did one of these, like, you know, be at a record store, pull out records and like, uh, talk about records sort of videos for run for cover, like 10 years ago at this point or something, or less than that. I don't know, a long time ago. And I was at, a uh, Armageddon records in Boston and I pulled out, you know, I was like going through stuff and I pull out lowest of the low and I just looked at the camera and I was just like, undeniable. Like, that record is timeless to me. It will always be timeless to me. It it makes me think about uh, LA in that specific time, which is really special. But then on top of that, like sonically, it sounds like it could have been recorded yesterday. Like it's just completely timeless. So again, not a question in here, but I want to say thank you for that. Cause it's just like, it's an incredibly important record that like gets thrown on in our van. Often everybody has a great time. It's uh, it's, it's super special. And um, like, 
I suppose like when you look, when you do like think about that record, because you guys just played it, right? Like recently, was it for a fest here? Was it for, for the children? Um, I don't want to gloss over what you just said that. Sure. Thank you. And of any, course. anyone that likes any terror record or anything I've done, but for you to say this such nice things means a lot. Um, we did it three days in a row. Uh, wow. We played just, just a, in Connecticut, just a, a normal show, I guess you'd call it. We played a yeah. fest in Reading, PA, and then we played for the children in LA. So we did it three times. Okay. Well, how does it feel? Like, does it still feel uh, timeless to you? Or when you play those songs now, like, does it, do, can you feel the growth in yourself, like, throughout all of these years? Uh, Again, that's a, there's many, many records I've been a part of because this is the second time I'm going to say this. I wouldn't change anything on that, right? Except the cover art. I think it, it uh, could have had a better cover art, but it's a great record. The energy is great. The songs, it's, it's great. And Todd, Todd is such, Todd Jones is such a, an animal. Um, playing the songs some of them we haven't played in so long. It's, uh, you know, tear is such a machine and we're yeah. kind of in our groove. So to play a song you haven't played in 20 years, <laughs> it, it's a different spin. But I think there was an arc in terror where, you know, I don't think we ever got too away from the traditional hardcore sound, but there's definitely some albums that are a little more metal and a little more experimental with some different sounds and stuff. Not that we ever really veered too far, but I think we've looped back down and come closer. Like the newest records, the cl- and that might do have a lot to do with Todd being involved. But uh, I could still feel it. I still think it's awesome. I still sometimes am very glad that we tried some other things and we have some songs with other elements. But uh, yeah, very proud of it and. It was definitely cool to play it. Uh, I think we have so much material. It also is a little bit of a uh, vice to just lay on one record. Yeah. So it's not something I want to do all the time, but I'm glad you did it. We're we're doing our 15 year anniversary in February and we're playing four of our records, like front to back kind of a thing. And there's a lot of shit that like we haven't really ever played live or (laughs) we tried to play it. And it like, you know what it's like? I mean, you've put out so many records at this point. Like maybe you love the song in the studio, but then you like try it live and you're like, it just doesn't work. It just doesn't work. And it's been fun revisiting some of those songs and like rehearsing them songs that we haven't played. And now I'm like excited about it. Did you ever have that sort of feeling? Is there any songs on like lowest of the low that when you revisited, you were like, this song is maybe better than I remember. There's a song on uh, Keepers of the Faith called Shattered. Yeah. And it's lyrically super, for me, really emotional. And when the record came out, I was like, I can't play this. I'll, I'll start fucking crying. Like, it's, it's that deep. Um, recently, uh, we came out to L.A., I don't know, maybe about a year ago and did some shows with Mind Force and Outburst. Mm-hmm. And we put it in the set. And it felt great, and I love the song, but no one really cared about it, so we took it back out of the set. <laughs> I think we Damn. we we shelved it for so long that it's now just yeah. in in the abyss. 
that's kind of tough too. It's like you can convince yourself that a song doesn't work, but then you, there also there's that side conversation where you're like, well, you never really gave it a chance because you never yeah. like casually played it. So it's like I feel like so many of us get so used to sort of um, when you put out a record, you're probably playing the front loaded part of the record, a lot of the first five songs or something like that, and then the backtracks don't get a lot of love usually. Um, so I know what you're saying too, where it's like if you you weren't playing it right out the gate, so like. If you play a song, you're so used to the end. I mean, this is interesting for you as a front person who like, you know, uh, you're such a force as a front person where you're great at getting the energy up and all of that. So I can imagine, you know, that feeling when you you're every song you're you're singing, you're getting a reaction, you're getting a reaction, you're getting a reaction. But then you play a song that doesn't in your mind, it convinces you that it's not working. But like the audience is likely enjoying it just as much as the last song, but it's just they're not used to it. You know, but it's like so easy to convince yourself that like this didn't work. You know, I'm curious how you feel you're about that. You're completely right. And that's like one of that's one of my downfalls as a mine too. Every, everything terrors come to be. It's all about if someone jumped off something and did something crazy. And if the crowd was going crazy, you never really think about like a person like me. If I go to a show now, I'm going to be out of the way of people punching each other in the face and I might enjoy the show more than them, but you don't really think about those people, especially a band for like terror. It's all about, did the crowd go off, which is right. cool, but also a little bit sad. <laughs> no, I, I, I know. I feel it. I absolutely feel it. Um, so like you, I mean, you guys put out so many records. It's uh, I'm curious with keepers of the faith. Cause I feel like, uh, with keepers of the faith it was this awesome thing i can the only band i can really think to immediately compare it to and <laughs> you might find this funny is is green day where like so so like green day puts out dookie and shit changes right so you guys put out low is low and shit changes and then they have this crazy second wave so i feel like when you guys put out keepers of the faith there was this new generation of hardcore who found terror through keepers of the faith and then that sort of was like this new, not that you guys hadn't put out records and like, you know, we're continually being active and grinding and all of that sort of stuff. But like, do you think there's anything specific about that record that is responsible for bringing in that second wave of kids? Or if you've ever thought about that? Yeah, there's a, there's a couple of, th- I agree with you. And there's a couple of things. Uh, one would be, that's the first album we had David Wood from down to nothing on bass and Jordan from No Warning on guitar. Uh, that was also the time where the arc the, I was talking about, we had before that our record, The Damn the Shame, that was the one we got the farthest away from Okay. traditional hardcore. And we were touring at that time the most with Emir, Chimera. We were always still playing hardcore shows and doing hardcore tours, but also we had a foot out of what we had been doing and we sure. consciously sat down and said that stuff was all right but it's not really it's not making us happy maybe it's gaining us new fans or blah 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 so we made a conscious choice to to stick more in what we were about ourselves got those two in the band and I, I think a, a huge thing was uh, I can't 
I came up with the title of the record before a song was even written. Um, I came up with the, the, the record title, told the band, they all loved it. Uh, me and Patrick from Reaper Records, I was living with him at the time. We came up with that logo, the like a smorgasbord straight edge ripoff or whatever you want to call it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we started s- screen printing it on champion hoodies and wearing it to shows when no one even knew what it was. We we didn't we knew the words, we knew what it was going to be, but we didn't even know what it was. Yeah. And uh, uh the last piece of the puzzle was getting Chad Gilbert to produce it. Cuz not only did he really push the songs and make for some great songs, but he had so many ideas with the record, just a uh, cool things that we did around the record, like doing the gang vocals at chain reaction with like, we just invited the whole hardcore scene to come and do the backups. And there was like a hundred people. I don't think we used all their takes. You know, I think we yeah, just yeah, used, yeah. you know, we cherry picked. Yeah. Right. Um, what else? Chad had some really great ideas. Um, can't remember more than musically sure. he had some no, I understand really that. really cool ideas so i think all that coming together it was just crazy because i think the title really resonated with people because there must have been 50 tattoos of that logo on people before they heard the fucking record which is crazy wow yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean it's uh, you know, um to use the the gross words of 2023, but like yeah, I mean it's great branding and marketing. You know what I'm saying? Like <laughs> it's it's you guys were ahead of the curve on that. You know what I'm saying? Like you without realizing it, you guys were you guys really did set up a really good marketing plan for that record. Correct. But none of it was thought out. Thought it was out. All just yeah, like, of course. Yeah. Yeah. Like when we screened those hoodies, it wasn't like People are going to see these. Right. They're yeah, going to yeah. want to know what it means. It was yeah. just like, this fucking logo's cool. I want to wear this now, not and later. That's, and that's why it worked because it wasn't as strategic as that. It was just like, yo, I'm just psyched on this. Um, yeah. I just wanted to add this funny aspect about, um, I want you to know that, so Live By The Code came out in 2013, right? I was working uh, at the record store I used to work at in Burbank a couple days a week just for some side money between tours. So I was there when that record came out and I was stocking the shelves with it. And we had a record coming out that same year. And Nick and I from my band were, were, were thinking about the album artwork. And it was because of Live By The Code, I said, we should put us on the cover. It should be like, like I, like, I don't think there's a lot of bands currently right now putting band photos of themselves on the cover and i was like this terror record came out and i love that it's just like a band photo of them because i don't see that happening that much anymore and that's what inspired us to be like yo we should we should do that too (laughs) i i think uh i think that was nick's idea like he was really into the venice i think he still is but really into the venice stuff and i think they have some records where they're on the cover so we we tried to look venice and put us on the cover and at that point it was like record seven like we've done everything else what can we do just like flip (laughs) it around that's supposed to be on the back but now it's on the front totally (laughs) yeah 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 like our our thing ended up being like a very obscure like you know blurry like artsy fartsy version of it but it was because that's how i had to present it to nick i was like i want us on the photo he's like okay but we have to like 
we have to fuck with it a little bit but but uh i just want you to know that uh terror was the inspiration for uh for us doing that very um, beautiful i yeah, i came yeah. to that record store once um i mean i came there a few times sure. but one time i came there with andrew klein i think it was, that makes sense was it mf doom did he play there no uh, cool keith cool, cool keith. keith right yeah 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 we had a he lot did of cool store stuff yeah yeah, me, me and Andrew came there, and I think he told me that you worked there. I, I don't think you were there, though, but... No, uh, I had worked working. there, like, two, 2001 to, like, 2005, and then post-Touche, there was, like, a couple summers where I came in just to, like, stock hardcore stuff and, and whatever else to sort of help with that section. But, um, yeah, that story is unfortunately long gone now, too. Um, so I, have, I wrote a couple just fun questions uh, not related to records to ask you. Um, uh, just for myself, including, uh, so Tara's like, you know, I, I feel like I use Tara as the benchmark for like a band that has toured so fucking hard. Like I, you, there's no way you guys kept track of how many shows you've played, right? No clue. With, with like how hard your band has toured or whatever. I was curious, is there anywhere left that you guys huh. haven't played that is like still a bucket list for you? Yes. Um, we have gone to Puerto Rico, but only once, like so long ago. And I want to go there just selfishly because I want to go there. Yeah. Um, I know like Stick to Your Guns went to Africa. That seems so cool. I want to go to Africa. Yeah. Um, Alaska. We've never been to Alaska. Okay, I know Every shit. time I die, has been there a couple times. Yeah, we have too. Um, I will hit you with the guy to do it. Nice. Tell him, yeah. please. Yeah, please. Yeah, we'll, we'll make Those that are the happen. first thing that come to mind. Um, okay, because I know you're short on time. We're going to get to this. So uh, I'm going to hit you with the last question, which is when was the first time that you felt like you were doing the thing you'd been working so hard towards? Uh, can, can I deviate from the question, but answer it in my yeah. own way? Please. I was, I, I mentioned my brother so many times on this. Uh, me and my brother, m moving back to Buffalo, I see my brother a lot more. And, and we were just talking about everything that we've grew up doing together. And, uh, you know, I've been doing terror, f let's call it full time for the last 22 years. At the same time, he's a tattoo artist. Um, that's what he does for a living. I kind of took the Viking nomad way where I've never got married. I have no kids. He owns a home. He has two daughters. He's married. Um, but both of us kind of had this conversation like for being two fuck ups from the suburbs of Buffalo, we kind of won in life. Um, him doing you know he always drew like the the lost cause demo that i was talking about he it's a drawing by him so he always was artistic and now he tattoos and i whether this is uh taboo or not i live off uh terror so yeah i we kind of had this conversation that we both won in life so i'd say having that conversation is when it all really sums up how awesome music has been to me and and uh to him to, art art has been to him 
that's beautiful that's that's that is uh that's not taboo at all by the way that's beautiful that's that's incredible it's incredible thank you thank you uh this, Scott, I agree. This, has been, this is this has been an absolute joy thanks for thanks for making it work uh you're someone i've always respected uh so much and um yeah so thanks for thanks for being a part of this weird little show the respect is absolutely mutual and thank you for having me And that's our show. Thank you so much to Scott Vogel for coming on and thank you for listening. Reminder, there is a bonus episode available right now where Scott answered questions that were submitted by subscribers. Hit that over at patreon.com slash the first ever Patreon. Take care. Thanks again. I'll see you next week. Bye-bye.